Father, we do thank you this morning for this wonderful day that you've made. Your mercies are new. We thank you for this rich promise, and we carry it with us as we enter into this place. We're grateful that we have the joy and privilege and freedom without fear of persecution, Lord, to sit in this place uh, within walls and a comfortable, comfortable places, Lord, and avail ourselves to your mercy and your power as you reveal to us what you have for us this day. We thank you that it is, in fact, living and enduring. We are grateful that you are a God who implants this word into dead sinners, and you make us alive. You make us your own. And so we come to you with gratitude. We come to you with humility. Lord, deal with any arrogance and pride within us. And Lord, would you, would you find us teachable and moldable to your likeness? We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You'll remember we're cut, we are in 1 Peter. If you've been here in and out, we're going to be at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3, treating this in really two parts. The grand theme of the book is two words. What is it? Stand firm. There we go. And the whole structure of the book, right, is hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering, right? He writes at the end of chapter 5, this is the true grace of God. They're in the midst of trial. They begin to question, perhaps doubt, and be discouraged. Know this true grace of God and stand firm in it. And he unpacks throughout the book, what does that standing firm look like? And that clinging to that living hope that's yours, that glory glorious inheritance that you are to uh, know in full on a given day that he has scheduled, you are to cling to it, revel in it, and that's going to produce something in your life. It's going to produce a life which exalts the Savior who suffered and died in your place. Now, I want to remind you as we kind of begin to unpack and pick up where we left off, our aim in every morning, really every time that we gather, as we consume God's Word and as we eat it, is never to simply discuss a subject and leave this place as, as theological eggheads, right? Theo geeks. That is not what we are about. Our aim is life change, and that's our aim because that's Whose aim? That's God's aim, to render glory to himself by changing his people. He wants their hearts stirred. He wants their lives changed. He wants the community that is known as his people, the household of God, to be shaped by the instruction and truth bound up in this book that you hold in your hands. Just a heads up, normally you'll keep in mind that we really kind of cover the living what we learn section at the end where we ask a few questions. We're going to splice that in because I don't want to, I don't want, I want to spice it up and change it up a little bit. We're going to talk about the implications and application along the way. Okay. Look at chapter one of the first Peter verse 22. We're going to read it momentarily. Just to remind you, at this verse, we begin to notice a very significant change in the book. Uh, thus far, he, he's been talk, talking about the future, and he, he moves from focusing on the future, right, verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1, to now that living hope that's ours in Jesus Christ, to now also talking about what they presently have. What is it that you are to be marked by? What is your life to look like? And we began looking at that even last Sunday. Those who possess new life in Christ, that living hope, are to be marked by a few things. A growing love for God's people, His Word, and God Himself. A growing love for God's people, His Word, and God Himself. And all of this is beginning to be unpacked for us in the second section of this book. 
122 through chapter 2, actually verse 10, that we will finish next Sunday, Lord willing. To remind you of the main idea of our text, it would be this. We always try to summarize things in one sentence. What's the thrust of the overall text? Christians have been given a glorious new life, and it is glorious, is it not? A glorious new life through God's living and enduring word, and here it is, which should then produce loving relationships within God's people, okay? That last part of the sentence is what we will cover today. Let's read verse 22 of chapter 1. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it may, you may grow in respect to your salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Christians have been given a glorious new life through God's living and enduring word which should then result in loving relationships within God's people. Now, as, as is typically the case, there's a structure to this passage that's not only beautifully stunning, but it's also incredibly instructive for us. God transports His Word into our life in very strategic and intentional ways, and this is no exception. So what's the outline of the passage? To think of it in this way, there's really kind of two questions that are bookending this passage. How do I start the Christian life? How does that start? How does it begin? And how do I continue in that Christian life? And woven in this bookshelf are two, uh, really one command, right? Love one another. Now, that's expressed to us and coming to us in different what, contrasting ways. But in its essence is this impulse and command, exhortation to love one another. And friends, that grand chandelier is all connected to one centerpiece, is it not? Why? love one another. Right at the very middle of the passage, right? This is known as a chiasm where here, here's the reason why. For you were born again through the living and enduring Word. You have new life. That's why we say Christians who have a glorious new life through God's living and enduring Word should then have loving relationship within God's people. Okay? Let's review that first part. How do you start the Christian life? Well, the reality is you don't start it. Someone initiates it on your behalf. New life is the result of God's Word implanted in you. Look at verse 22. We just read it. Peter talks about the obedience to the truth. You purify your soul. He references the sincere love of the brethren, a suitcase that we'll unpack in a moment. And he goes on to say in verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. One of the things this passage does so clearly is contrast our inability to live in love with God's ability to do both in profound and remarkable ways. Once this God who is both life and who is love Himself 
sends his word into our hearts to give us life, we taste of the Lord's kindness, what happens? At that moment, then and only then, are we enabled to manifest the fruit of his character in our lives, right? This is the logic of love itself, right? Sincere love of the brethren. It's only at salvation that we are given the capacity to demonstrate this type of supernatural love which is held out for us here. And how does this enabling take place? Well, you just read it. God gives dead people new life. For you were born again through the Word of God. People who were once dead, lifelessness that according to chapter 1, verse 18, entailed them having capacity to only produce futility and emptiness. That was their life. That was our life apart from the grace of God. Futility and emptiness. God gives such people new life through the miracle of what is known as regeneration. He makes them alive. And he does this by taking this divinely produced seed, this imperishable seed that Peter writes of, and with all of the necessary properties of life within itself bound up in that seed, through that seed, which Peter writes is the living and enduring word of God, God performs this miracle whereby he alone germinates that seed which infallibly then gives rise to our faith in union with Jesus Christ. You see how this works in our life, right? It's a miracle of grace and a miracle of power. He writes in verse 23, this image of planting a seed, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Now, let me ask this morning, What is it that plants with new life have? When a seed sprouts and becomes a plant, what typically comes with that plant? What are things that you note about it? What are its parts? What's that? I'm sorry. Roots that go down deep. Excellent. What's that? The stem, flower, leaves, petals, fruit, There's all sorts of manifestation that I look at this plant and can tell that it's alive. And it's the same with believers as well. I look at this person and I can tell they're alive. They have new life coursing through through them through the power of God. Well, what sort of flower should we expect to emerge from this seed that's given new birth to believers? That leads us to points two and three. Okay, What sort of flower? What manifestation of life should be evident in our lives? Number two, new life is to be marked by love, plain and simple. Peter is already stressed and will continue to do so throughout this book that Christians are in a similar position to the Israelites leaving Egypt and heading towards the promised land. You'll recall the Old Testament account, yes? He says, we like them, we're exiles. We are aliens. We are sojourners. And let me ask you this morning, what do you remember about Israel's time of sojourning. What do you remember about their travels from Egypt to the promised land? How does the scripture characterize their travel together? You remember? What's that? I know it is uh, to, to, to hear through the whistle. Grumbling. Thank you. What else? What's that? 
They wandered from camp to camp in the wilderness. Excellent. Yes. Okay. Okay. God's wisdom was was to be on even upon their structure and organization, and that was to be for their good, right? Chandra mentioned grumbling, which is all over the book of Numbers, is it not? You have this God who miraculously, just remember the book of Exodus, the ten plagues, and the dividing of the Red Sea, and yet even in that, lest we be arrogant to say, how could Israel do that? Yes, exactly. We do similar things every single day, right? Both Exodus and Numbers teach that the Israelites immediately, like immediately, (laughs) face disputes and grumbling and even envy towards one another. And so Peter, therefore, now here in this New Covenant context, turns to address how believers should travel together. Your exiles, your aliens, your sojourners, well, how do you travel together? And it's really at this point where Peter begins to unpack all of the corporate implications of this shared new life together. Those who possess new life from God's hand now have the capacity to demonstrate His character in their relationships with one another. Really, this leads to the second part of the main idea that we are talking about, right? Christians have been given a glorious new life through God's living and enduring Word. Second part of the sentence, which should then produce loving relationships within God's people. Look at verse 22. Since you have been, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Move down to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Let's note a few things about this exhortation, this admonition, this command to love. Okay, number one. This should be a love that should flourish among selfless family members. Okay, It should flourish among selfless family members. It, it really is hard to ignore the, the family emphasis that, that Peter presents here. Right? He uses these series of phrases which build up a picture of the church as God's family. Right? Chapter 1, verse 17, God is Father. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 23, there's this new birth. Believers become new babes. Chapter 2, verse 2, we're obedient children. Chapter 1, verse 14, we're brothers and sisters. There's this family image that's associated with the church, and that's who we are, right? We are, we are family. I would just pause for a moment. Do you, do you think of yourself that way as you come here to North Lake Bible Church? I, I'm meeting with my family. I'm going to my small group. I'm meeting with part of my family. Does it feel that way? Do you see it that way? We ought to. We are all collectively traveling to a home beyond this place, and we're traveling together as a family. Now, I don't know about your journeys as a family, just in your own household, but we recently went to Colorado and crammed into a suburban six deep. And I tell you, all, all 12, 14 hours as we went different places, it was harmonious. There was no infighting. There was no, um, there was just selflessness. They broke out in spiritual songs and hymns, devotions. It was wonderful. I know it probably looked a lot like your family travels. That's not the case. That's not the case oftentimes even in 
God's family. Which is thus the reason why the exhortation is needed in 1 Peter, is it not? If this just became organically and naturally and with little effort and complication and hindrance, we wouldn't see such exhortations. But the reality is we need a lot of help and a lot of reminding. So notice among these individuals, it's among selfless family members that there is this love that is also free or untainted of self-interest. That's powerful. Free and untainted with self-interest. He writes in verse 22, sincere love of the brethren. He even says, from the heart. This heart is to be an active response that's not dependent upon the beauty and desirability of the person being loved, is it? It's from the heart. It's sincere. It seeks their good rather than their goods, right? There's no thought of gaining in return as we dispense love to other people. We don't do it with the aim of wanting to receive something back. And on top of this, we don't begrudge our labor to love. We love joyfully. We love earnestly, sincerely, Peter writes, fervently. So this should be a love that should flourish among selfless family members. Secondly, this should be a love that extends itself beyond earthly expectation. Let's spend a moment here. See, there's no sense in Peter's flow of thought that love is simply an emotional thing, which the world often confused, does it not? Now, love here in this instance is tethered to an intentional action. And this active response is not dependent upon the beauty or desirability of the object being love. Brotherly love is radically different. It's something that is to be pursued earnestly unremittingly, deeply to other people. He says, fervently love one another. Now, friends, that's the same word if you look over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Now, that word fervent there, it literally means at full stretch to stretch out to the furthest limit. We're talking max capacity of a given muscle. Maximum capacity. You can picture an individual or an animal just running at full gait. You can see it, right? Legs stretched out, reaching for every inch and covering massive ground. And what a beautiful picture here of love Is it not? The idea that the gate of our striving would be stretched out literally to the max, all in the name and for the aim of loving each other. At the end of the day, our love for one another should be strenuous and enduring. Even the idea of someone extending themselves far beyond what they had ever previously done before. Exceeding earthly expectation. Why? To demonstrate such love within the family of God. Let me ask you, and this is where we'll hear each other a little bit of living what we learn. What are tangible ways 
that we can extend ourselves in the name of love. What are tangible ways this sort of love shows up in the people of God, the church? Okay. You gotta really pierce through the whistle. What is it? I don't know why I looked at you, Preston. Overlook offenses, right? You've got that 1 Corinthians 13 right on top of the people of God. Serving. Man, that takes on thousands of different forms, right? Grand and small. I think that's what we need to heed, too. It's, it's, it's even small gestures from a thank you note <laughs> to encourage to providing a meal or a ride or, I mean, the list goes on. Anything else? Tangible ways we can extend ourselves. You'll just pass it forward. It'll be the tin can game. What will it be by the time it makes its way back? Uh, stir one another on. Spur one another on. Thank you. To love and good deeds. Dusty be like, why'd you go over this morning? We just can't hear each other. It takes forever. Um, any other ways? What does spur one another look, look like? What, I mean, what's an example of that? Yeah, it's good. Yes, Mr. Wendell. Yeah, I like that good ministerial plug there. That was good. Assimilation. <laughs> it was good. Enfolding in the body, which we're going to talk about towards the end. Wes, do you have one? Nope, just a stretch. Okay. All sorts of tangible ways we can extend ourselves in the name of love. I want to encourage you this morning. Already, we're two years in. We just had the two-year anniversary. I think one of the things, uh, if you have an opportunity to interact with people who maybe even have come in recent months or even in the last year, there's a common denominator in all of those conversations of why they're here, why they're staying here, and of the many things that they observe, it's this right here. Okay? And I say that not to, to puff up, but to, to encourage, to thank you, but also can we excel still more? Always is the case we can excel still more. We care for one another in all sorts of ways. I want you to encourage you to have an eye. Lord, just even pray this week, Lord, help me see ways to care for one another. Because that's part of the issue. Again, we're so myopic, self-centered, focused on self, our agenda, and running kids to practice, and here and there, and you know, going to a CrossFit workout, and for someone in the room, um, I just caught his eye, um, that we, we, don't, we don't pay attention to opportunities, and they're all around us, right? If we would take our eyes off of ourselves, will it come with potential inconvenience to yourself and your schedule? What does he talk about? Love one another fervently. I want you to think about that image this week of literally extending yourself like full gate to love other people. Sometimes that entails deviating from your, your schedule, <laughs> being a little late or giving up of something else that you would like to do. But that's what we do. Maximum capacity to love each other. 
What are some of the corporate implications of this passage at this moment? Let me give you two, okay? One is our love for one another does not easily falter, okay? Our love for one another should not easily falter. If it's fervent and sincere and coming from this new life that's dwelling within us, here's what happens. Friends, we don't easily give up on brothers and sisters, do we? We stick with one another with when the need may even last for perhaps weeks or maybe even months. That's what loving family members do. We invite another stranded family member in and we invite them to sit with us and eat with us and stay with us so that we can bless them. And guess what? We, that, that welcome to those in our family stays warm even when dishes break and carpets get stained, right? It gets messy sometimes with relationships, but it does not easily falter if it's fervent, sincere, and coming from new life residing within us. We understand? Number two, corporate implication. We need every, every, Mr. Wendell's point, every muscle stretched out to full, the fullest capacity. There's going to be times, the older I get, the more I realize this, there's going to be times where someone pulls a hammy. Okay? There's someone who's going to get a cramp of discouragement. There are going to be some who just seem to run faster and further than others. That will happen and does happen. But all of us need to extend. Right? Rendell's gate is going to be different than my gate. Jake's gate is going to be different than Abel's gate. Right? And it's the case in the body of Christ. But if we're all running max capacity, what happens? What inevitably happens when there is full-fledged extension by everyone in this church? Let me, let me ask you. What happens? We're strengthening each other. It actually encourages the whole of us to run faster and further. What else? We build momentum. Absolutely. Anything else? What's that? It unifies us, right? We're, we're in the boat. We're all rowing the same way. And if you're all rowing with max capacity, that helps the rowing, right? There's going to be times when some people's hands just get tired on the oar and we come alongside them and we take our seat, right? Anything else? It sets us apart. We look radically different than the rest of the world. Absolutely. Which is really exciting to think about this neighborhood and just this church right here. Radically different. I think another thing to add is our capacity as a single body is increased. Our capacity to bless God and honor the Savior by that love we are marked with, it's increased capacity as we love ourselves, love ourselves, love one another with full extension. Peter goes on, Peter, to help us understand what this love entails by highlighting what needs to be removed from the life of the believer for this type of love to transpire, which leads us to the next point. This is to be a love that aggressively removes all diseases of community. Aggressively removes all diseases of community. I cannot stop, I cannot start struggling with English language at this point. We're almost there. 
Love aggressively removes all diseases of community. Love diseases, right? A disease, we know what this is in real life. In the physiological world, a disease is a harmful problem or condition that not only impairs normal functioning, preventing the body from working as it should, right? But it also can lead to physical harm. And there are various vices which do exactly that, even in the people of God. They harm. They impair. To that end, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside, literally, rid yourself, take it off, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The Christian, the one with new life of the living and enduring Word of God, is to put away or get rid of these five particular things. They're like muddy clothes. You walk into the house and when you're in muddy clothes and it begins to dry, it makes running hard, doesn't it? What do you do? You take off the muddy clothes. That's exactly what Peter exhorts here. And why does he give this instruction? It's because all of these vices can disrupt and destroy relationships and the relationships that are to be in God's people. These are community-destroying Vices. They are vices that undo people instead of build them up. And the reason that Peter must give this instruction is really twofold. One, it's revealing about ourselves, right? He has to exhort us to rid ourselves of them is because these things are naturally bound up where? Right in our sinful hearts. That unredeemed flesh that Romans 7 talks about. What I want to do, I do not do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And the second reason he gives this instruction is that all too often these are vices that are tolerated within the church. And so let's look at each of them briefly. First, he mentions malice. Malice is evil in in the broadest possible sense, right? Ill will desiring harm to someone else. And it's really sort of an all-inclusive word, an umbrella. Encased within would be really any bad blood that exists within the body of Christ, any nursing of grudges and wounds which seem to so often motivate many, many people. I think someone mentioned, Preston, we overlook offenses. We forgive. And that's exactly it. We don't harbor any bad blood. And this bad blood, when it is harbored, can manifest in a variety of different ways. All of this list of 1 Peter 2.1 really are even the same characteristics used to describe unbelievers in Romans chapter 1, right? Who refuse to acknowledge God or give Him thanks and exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the Creator. Look how Paul describes them. Romans 1.29 They are people filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Did I skip it? I sure did. That's okay. 2 Corinthians 12, let me tell you what it says. There are these qualities later that Paul is going to be afraid that when he visits Corinth, he's going to be afraid of finding. And he tells them, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to not be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, 
jealousy, angry, anger, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid I'm going to find these among you. Even in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, these are the qualities that Paul describes of us before experiencing the Lord's kindness, right? Through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, and being declared right with God by an act known as justification. Titus 3, 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Peter says, this, this was once who you were. And you're going to still smell of smoke when you're in Christ. There's still going to be an unredeemed flesh. And that sinful heart is going to want to gravitate back. But by the grace of God, through His Spirit, and through the power of His Word, rid yourselves of these things. Why? Because you've been born again, right? That's why. Put away malice. And secondly, put away deceit. That word there is to bait or to fish hook, which is an appropriate image, is it not? You ever fish? It's remarkable that you can put a worm on a barbed metal hook intended to snatch a fish from a body of water, and yet what do fish do? They still latch on. That's the idea of deception. We, we bait. We deceive. It denotes dishonesty and falsehood, typically for our own selfish gain or self-preservation. When we deceive, that's not sincere love, is it? That's not love from the heart. And we need only look at our own Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, for a demonstration of what this looked like to not do this. First Peter 2.21, right? For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who, here it is, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. 1 Peter 3.10 For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Peter says, rid yourself of this dishonesty. And it is true, it's usually for our own gain or self-preservation. Especially that latter one. Let me twist, manipulate, deceive to prop up myself so that I might appear better than what I really am. To appear something that I'm not. Which leads to really that second, that third quality is hypocrisy. This is the opposite of spiritual sincerity. The word just really describes any behavior that is not genuine or consistent with what one really believes or says he believes. Right? That word there is of an actor who would wear a mask in New Testament times. And that's the word picture there. Individuals walking around, not with their true face, their sincere face, but with a pretense, with a mask to appear something that they are not. And in church, my encouragement, scratch that, the Lord's encouragement would be that North Lake Bible Church should be a no-mask zone, right? No mask. Our real faces. Our real faces. 
Because all of those faces are precious faces. They're imperfect faces. We are to be transparent. We are to be a genuine bunch. We avoid two-facedness, double-mindedness that James talks about. Duplicitousness is not part of us. Why? Because we've been born again through the living and enduring Word. Fourth, we put away envy. (laughs) We could spend a couple weeks there. Envy refers to the attitude whereby one resents the prosperity of others. This really is a significant community killer. Envy. We can often be guilty of looking around, right? And what do we do when we look around? We begin to compare ourselves with other people. We look at their marriage and compare them to our own. We look at their family. We look at their children, their possessions, their their jobs, success, gifts, capacities to serve, and strengths. And the list could go on and on, and we begin to seethe with envy. What happens when that part of our unredeemed flesh rears its ugly head and we do not labor to rid ourselves of it? What happens when we live inconsistent of this new life that we have in Christ? Well, that envy, in that envy, we begin to despise and loathe the very people that we are called to do what? We are called to love. We literally do the opposite. Instead of sincerely, sincere brotherly love, we begin to replace it with grudges and bitterness and hatred and ultimately even conflict. We see people differently. Peter says, rid yourselves of it. Put it aside. And you're going to need to put it aside today. And you're going to put it aside tomorrow and the next day. You're also going to need to put aside slander. This is one of those words in the New Testament when pronounced in the Greek is literally sounds like the action which is being communicated, right? When an onomatopoeia, which is fun to say, onomatopoeia. Everyone say it with me. Onomatopoeia. Thank you. And we know what this slander is, right? It's gossip. It's backbiting. It literally sounds like people whispering behind your back. Peter says, put away slander. Why? Slander typically leads to the defaming of another person's character, and that would not be loving, would it? Peter says, put these aside. And that... Put aside is the same word used in James 1.21, literally, right, of getting rid of weeds which can hinder growth. Let's look at Colossians 3. We covered this already a couple of months ago. If we want the full flowering of brotherly love in this church and in this family, we want it to be evident. These sort of weeds, right, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, they have to be plucked out, Colossians 3, put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. You're starting to get a theme in the New Testament, literally, that this is pretty much in the majority of epistles in some form or fashion. Ephesians 4, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
Put them away, the Lord says. I want to encourage you this morning before we move on to the third and final point is just an encouragement for you really to spend the remainder of the morning, maybe even as we enjoy the next hour, just to imagine a collection of people who are immensely marked in this way. People walk in and, and everything else that the world is characterized by, right? Romans 1 literally has no presence. They, they are surrounded by a burning fire outside in this world that is lost and without Christ. And they walk into this place and there is no smell of smoke. What happens? It's jarring. It's in a holy way unsettling. It's stirring. The Lord uses that. Hey, this is, this is a people that are different. Why are they different? And then what do they see us doing? We point them to why we're different. Not because, not because of us, right? But because of the one who saves and the one that we worship. My encouragement to you this morning is just to make sure that you put yourself in a position to love and be loved. What do I mean by that? Put yourself in a position to love and be loved. I would ask, are you connected to your family in a deliberate, purposeful way? It is extremely hard to love and be loved if you are incredibly isolated and removed from the people of God. You blitz in, you blitz out. Right Now, I, I encourage you, you're, you're here the first hour, and, and that is to be commended. Not in a puff-up sort of way, but you are here. But it even goes beyond that. Do people know you? Or do they know more about your the taillights of your car than they know about just your life and what's going on? Like, you're here, and you blitz to the parking lot. Be plugged in in intentional, purposeful ways. Why? So that you have full opportunity to extend yourself to love beyond earthly expectation and to have others do that to you as well. What does that require? A lot of vulnerability and humility. Because we are imperfect. Our small groups should be marked by a collection of imperfect people who are gathering not to simply just to revel and, and wallow in our sin, but we talk about ways in which we can encourage one another. We're, we're all imperfect and in need of same, the same grace of God. Let's spur one another on, even as Drew mentioned earlier. This majorly rubs against individualism of our day, right? I used to live in a part of the country that still had a very pioneer mindset. It was very in the garage, out of the garage, back in the garage. And that was it. You didn't even know your neighbor. Like, literally, you didn't know their name. People in the church had never been to each other's homes. homes. That was just kind of the, the culture there. It was very sad. Put yourself in a position to love and be loved. Third, new life is to be marked by growth. It's to be marked by growth, which comes through feeding on God's Word. This is chapter 2, verse 2 through 3. Peter exhorts them in verse 22 of chapter 1, fervently love one another from the heart, and he adds this, chapter 2, verse 12, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And indeed you have, if you be in Christ today. See, even though believers now possess new life in Christ, 
and thus now have the capacity to love in transcendent and a godly manner. This continued presence of the unredeemed flesh, Romans 7, right? Still has them and causes them to fail to love as they should. And so Peter goes on to admonish the church to, to do what it, by God's grace and power, is already capable of doing. And if they're going to manifest this type of supernatural and undying love for the people of God, and do so as they're called, this love which is consistent with the imperishable new life that's theirs in Christ, they're going to need strengthening for the task, aren't they? And so in comes chapter 2, verse 2, love and Christian maturity, both of those are going to grow, they're going to balloon and increase as the plant is watered by God's Word. And here even Peter changes the metaphor a little bit, or the object lesson, as he says and describes us as newborn babes. We are babes requiring milk in order to grow up. When? Even grow up as we're traveling together to that future place of glory. It's a very interesting dynamic here, and I want you to just take a note of it before we close. You wrap your arms and span back out 30,000 feet on this passage. You'll remember, Christians, how does the new life in Christ start? you remember point one, right? New life starts by God implanting His Word in you. Fast forward, not only is the Christian life started that way, but it's also continued that way as well. The fascinating part is that we continue in the Christian life in exactly the same manner, by feeding on that very Word that's been planted within us, pure spiritual milk. We need it and take it in as an infant even drinks its mother's milk. And we can picture this image, the neediness, the dependency, the frequency. This has always been the case, really, in the Bible. If you look at Job 23, even in the Old Testament, Old Testament saint expressed a strong desire for God's Word. I have not departed from the command of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. Psalm 1-2, the godly man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law he meditates on it day and night. That word meditate is literally of of chewing or regurgitating, just you keep mulling it over, digesting it. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me as joy and the delight of my heart. Two more, Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. How did we rid ourselves of malice and envy and slander and deceit and hypocrisy? We read it earlier, Psalm 119.11, Thy word I have hidden my heart heart, that I might not wet, I might not sin against you. What's the implications for the church, this pillar in support of the truth that Paul says in 1 Timothy? Let me ask one, is what happens when someone consumes contaminated milk? Hopefully none of you have. It's not pleasant. <laughs> you spit it out, okay. What if you consume it, like literally consume it? You get sick. And when you're sick, do you function as you should? 
No. You are, you are doing one thing. <laughs> You're not in an upright position. You are doubled over, right? You're definitely not running, okay? You're definitely not fully extended. We know the dangers of, of contamination. It's, it's sickness. And that's why North Lake Bible Church, right, we take very seriously a high view of God's Word. We approach it with the philosophy that we do. We hold it in high regard that the milk that's held out is pure spiritual milk, uncontaminated, sufficient for life and godliness. This book that we know changes lives. It builds us up. It mobilizes us to do what? To live in Christ-exalting ways. Hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking. I just encourage you with three things. One, be amazed. Be amazed at this book. When you, we read it, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 in a moment. Approach it with, with awe and wonder. This is the living word implanted us, gives us new life, and it even arms and strengthens us to live in a way that pleases the one who suffered and died for me. Third is drink milk and drink lots of it. Okay, Drink it often. Drink it frequently. You show me a Christian who's consuming milk, I will show you a growing Christian. Right? And you have individuals who will read it just, just rotely, mechanically, robotically. But you will not grow, will not grow without consumption of this book. Third is just examine. Dead people don't crave nourishment. They don't. One of the signs of new life within you is that you crave this nourishment doesn't mean you have to be a theologian. Reality is we're all theologians. We all have a concept of who God is, but that concept should be growing, becoming refined and more accurate and more in line and lockstep with God's Word. If you're alive in Jesus Christ, you should yearn for that. Okay, So examine yourself. We are right up to time. You've been gracious. It's been rich text. We're going to wrap this up next Sunday in chapter 2, verses 4. Through 10, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Encourage you back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the hope that we possess even as we leave this room to the next. We're going to sing of that hope. We're going to read of that hope. It's going to be expounded for us. Lord, help us with an all degree of sincerity and attentiveness, with all of our energy fully extended. Lord, joyfully place ourselves in submission to what you have for us today. Father, we also realize that in part is it, what you have for us is this exhortation to love one another. We want to praise you first for the ways in which love is already evident in this fellowship, this church. That's your doing. All credit and glory and honor belong to you. That's you. And Lord, we also ask that you would help us, guard us, that we be not complacent where we yet presently reside but help us to excel still more for your glory and praise. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.